Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Testing, testing, testing. One, <coughs> one, two, three. Are you ill? No, no, no. <laughs> Quite well. How are you? I'm okay. Um, today I want to talk about death. Oh. Do, when you train to be a doctor, do you go through training on how to deal with death? Not a lot. I know there's been a, a movement in medical education more recently to help people um, think about end-of-life care, as it's mm -hmm. called. Um, but it's still not the thrust of medical education did you after i mean you didn't you weren't a doctor for very long before you became a an internet writer but did you um did well, you after hang on there <laughs> i am a doctor um i didn't well you practice. weren't you weren't you weren't practicing for very long um, um sorry to sorry to offend you uh um, i practiced internal medicine only for one year did you ever have to deal with death during that year oh yeah yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. The hard part is getting the conversation going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you feel comfortable with it or more comfortable than your average uh, millennial? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once you've had many, many of these conversations with people, the, the hard part is um, actually remembering how scary it is for people who haven't thought about this at all to, you know, yeah. ease into the subject yeah well okay so maybe you can help me through this conversation but um the scale of death here we we're now past 120,000 deaths from this alone from coronavirus and then worldwide how many do we know about like how many confirmed deaths do we have worldwide right now okay so according to the dashboard at johns hopkins there are 472,737 global deaths recorded. and So the number could be much, much higher than that in reality. Yeah. So the U.S. has, has broken 120,000, and the second highest is Brazil, which has less than half as many deaths. And the U.S. was behind many other industrialized countries in terms of testing, um, but there are also many parts of the world that are unlikely to ever in the near term have the testing capacity that, that we have. So there's a lot that's just going to go undocumented. Right. So there's, I mean, we've been focusing a lot about what's on what's happening in the U S but worldwide, this is uh, just an unbelievable problem. So we're seeing all of this death. We're having rising case numbers in 25 States, Texas, Florida, Mississippi, and Colorado, Arizona is really bad. Like we're seeing big spikes in those states and we're reopening. You know, we're just like a lot of the strict social distancing and, and business shutdowns that were happening. We're just opening them back up while cases are rising. Here's, here's my question. It feels like 
this is a complete ethical minefield because it's not like the cost of the shutdown is is zero. You know, I mean, of course, like this is an economic catastrophe as well. And an economic catastrophe is also a health catastrophe. And, you know, all these economic indicators are also indicators of health and well-being. So it seems like there is a calculation being made, but not one that is visible or acknowledged or put open to public debate or discussion. And this has really been bothering me. So I want to talk to you and I want to also talk to an ethicist. Not that you're not an ethical person. Um, No, I'm an expert in ethics. Not at all. (laughs) I think you're a person (laughs) of average ethics. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, We are going to call Lydia Dugdale. She's a primary care doctor and the director of the Center for Medical Ethics at Columbia. Um, And she's been thinking a lot about this ethical calculus, and I'm hoping she can help us think through this. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Hi, Lydia. This is Jim. Hi. Nice to meet you. Thank you for speaking with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, so Lydia, can you just uh, introduce yourself for the audience and, and say what you focus on? Sure. I'm a general internist, so I take care of adult patients, and I am also a medical ethicist. I'm the director of the Columbia Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. And you have a new book. Yeah, it's called The Lost Art of Dying. Mm -hmm. And it's coming out July 7th uh, with HarperCollins. You do it all. (laughs) I try. (laughs) Uh, You know, me as a layperson, I I don't know how to talk about death. And I also don't know how to comprehend the scale of death that we're seeing right now. But you all as doctors and people who actually think about this all the time, do you feel like you have a better handle on it? Or has this been sort of overwhelming for you too? I think among doctors, there's probably a wide range of how people are processing this. Sure. So I you're not all you're not all robots that think and feel the same that's way. That's right. Just me. yeah. I and I I can't claim to speak on behalf of every single physician, but you're right. We see death all the time, and especially in my role taking care of adult patients, I, most of them are boomers, so they're thinking about aging and their mortality and sort of getting the proverbial house in order. So it is something that's very much a part of my consciousness. And certainly this is what I've been writing about for the last decade or so is the preparation for death. So I'm kind of thinking about death all the time. I think so. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is what kind of death is, I don't know if the word is acceptable or just something that we have become accustomed to and what kind of death is novel. And the coronavirus is such a novel form of death. And it also feels like it was so avoidable. So there's something about the suddenness and the the big number plus the suddenness that feels like, whoa, this shouldn't be acceptable. That's right. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it's a shock. It came upon us very quickly and sort of unlike flu, which drags out over months. The worst of it, especially in New York City, was over a several-week period. It just slammed us. Um, you know, I think the degree to which it was absolutely preventable is is a matter of debate, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because you can't lock down everyone forever, right? And even me working as a doc during this time, I mean, there's there are thousands and thousands of people related to healthcare that are being exposed and have to be exposed for the sake of caring for the patient. So there's no absolute lockdown possible. Right. So the idea that no one would ever be exposed is, is impossible. Just, is, is completely impossible. But 
But we can make choices about how many people are exposed and how necessary those exposures are, right? That's right. We we can. I think one thing that some of us um, have been talking about is, so so we've all seen the curve, right? And we've all been told flatten the curve. Yeah. And the curve is really the number of cases over time. And that area under the curve is the number of people who either get sick or die, depending on which curve you're looking at. So the question then is, if we flatten the curve, which I really believe we did in New York, I think that mm-hmm. the measures of lockdown helped to offload the burden on hospitals. So the flattening the curve to offload the burden on hospitals worked. Right. So we avoid these the most horrific scenes of you know people just not being able to get care. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, th- there were a couple of hospitals that were horribly slammed during this right. for a couple of weeks. But right. on the whole, New York fared much better than anticipated. Mm-hmm. But but so here's a question then is, and this is something that we legitimately do not know as we do not know so much, but is that area under the curve, now that the curve has been flattened somewhat, does the actual area under the curve, meaning the number of people who died, does that change or does it just get stretched out? Mm-hmm. And that's what we don't know. Meaning um, is the absolute number of deaths the same no matter how fast or slow it goes. That's right. And I, I mean, there was a lot of hope initially that we flatten the curve, we come up with a vaccine or a treatment, right. and and we're out of the woods. Um, but, you know, so far that hasn't played out. Well, so, yeah. yeah. And this is, a Jim, like th- we've been talking about this, is it doesn't seem like a vaccine is going to come any within any reasonable period of time, right? No, not in the near future. Uh, um, but... When you talk about treatments, um, I know, you know, it's not going to come in one pill or one magical practice that suddenly makes this a totally survivable condition. But doctors are at least getting better at identifying crashes and managing people to some degree, right? Or do you think that we're still in the same place in terms of treatments and Uh, outcomes as we were in week one? No, we've definitely made advances, for sure. But there's still so much we don't understand about this virus. Uh, But there's no magic bullet. And I think, you know, in American medicine, Jim, as you as you know, people are really looking for that magic bullet. What what's the pill I can take so that I can get up and walk and go home? What's the vitamin? Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So can we just I'm just going to ask you this really directly, because this is something I've been it hasn't been as clear to me as I would like it to be, but basically you both think that we are at a point where a vaccine is not going to come in time to make a meaningful difference in the number of deaths we have, at least in the United States. That's right. Yeah. Not in the next year, probably. And so the important question to be asking is how do we get through the reality that the pandemic is just going to sort of tear through our country? How do we get through that in the most ethical and least horrific way possible? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, that is right. I guess I'm trying to figure out what are the ethical trade-offs that are being made here? Like, is there, to me, it just seems like any death is bad. Any death is bad, but there are also deaths from the economic shutdown. So, you know, there's one way that people have framed this as deaths of, of old people and racial and ethnic minorities juxtaposed to the economy. And I don't like that language at all, in part because I care so much about people's lives. That's what I've committed my my career to. 
and I don't want people to die. At the same time, I am also seeing substantial suffering, which leads to death because of the economic downturn. So what do I mean by that? I'm in New York City. I know that there's been an uptick in intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. There's been an uptick in child abuse. Unfortunately for the children, uh, they're not seeing their mandatory reporters. So the daycare workers, the school teachers aren't seeing them. Uh, And so the cases that are ending up in the emergency room tend to be much more severe Mm -hmm. than what is typically seen. There's the problem of a lack of education for at least six months, right? We already know that kids who do no summer work fall behind by about a half a year. Now you have kids missing several months of school and no summer work, they're probably going to fall behind by, you know, a year. Then there's a lack of access to food. Many kids in New York City get their meals through the school system. And then, and then there's all of this data that we have on the correlates between socioeconomic status and health. And so just by taking a hit, a job loss, losing health insurance, uh, we can expect health outcomes to be worse. Mm-hmm. And then there's the questions of, suicide, alcohol, drug overdose. There have already been uh, predictions in the medical literature that we should expect to see a spike in all of those mm-hmm. um, uh, through this. So you, you take all of this and you say, there are real health outcomes that are bad from this shutdown, from this lockdown. Right. It's not just some sort of abstract you know, money calculation or the economy, which is this abstract concept. It's, it's that We are balancing two kinds of harms or multiple kinds of harms. That's exactly right. We're always making Mm -hmm. trade-offs. We make make trade-offs every time, you know, we eat fast food. We're trading on health versus heart disease, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the 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 convenience. Oh, the convenience. Yeah. Yeah, the convenience. (laughs) Right. right. Uh, Psychological uh, benefits of eating something extremely delicious. I know. That is great. And, uh, you know. In America, the fast food is our shared cultural experience now. That's and, right. Uh, it is our public square. Um, and it was an essential <laughs> service during the lockdown. Um, the question that I have is, isn't there a third way? I think there is, for some things, yeah, there's this sort of pull between, do we go back to the way we used to do things or do we stay in a shutdown mode? And Uh I worry sometimes people see that as a sort of false dichotomy instead of thinking, can't we um, open the streets and um, make make parks bigger, make more parks, make uh, more places for people to do the things they love in new and different ways. And instead of sheltering in place, waiting till we can go back to the system just as it was, like there's a lot of economic benefits be had just by thinking of new ways to give people the lives that they want in safer ways. I think you're right. There will be some novelty that comes out of this. That's really good. A lot more people will be working from home more, which may be better for many reasons. Um, Fewer people on the roads, less pollution. We're not going to go back to life as we knew it in January. That's just not going to happen. So... What what are what is like the highest projection that you've you've seen? We're now past one hundred twenty thousand deaths. Do you, have you seen high projections? The number out of the UK was two point two million for the US for the US, and that was the number that was that study that um, got us to lock down in the first. That's place. exactly right. That That's that what thing? motivated the yeah, Trump yeah. administration to do something. From right. from what I've heard, right. not that I was there. 
so we probably avoided reaching 2.2 million, but let's say let's say somewhere between 200, which is a given at this point, and 2.2 million, which was the highest projection we've seen. Is that right? I think that is, those are the bounds probably. Yeah, yeah we know. I mean, I know that it's impossible to, to actually give numbers. Um, for the purposes of argument, uh, for, for just this discussion, say the number ends up being in the middle of that, and it ends up over the next two years being a million in the U.S. And, you know, on, I mean, we're focusing on this on the U.S., but we know there's worse and different calculation happening in a lot of other places. Um, how do we do that in the most ethical way possible? Well, to say that, uh, so so I guess the preface to all of this maybe should be that mortality is 100%, right? Right, uh, right. So not for me, <laughs> but I understand how for other people that's true. That's right. That's right. But that's exactly that's exactly where we are as human beings. I mean, we don't want to acknowledge our own mortality. Um, so, so what you know to talk about ethical death? Well, no, you know, death is always a tragedy. It rips holes in communities. It's something that we grieve about, and and rightly so. At the same time. Is all death preventable? No. Uh, will all people die? Absolutely. And so my own work then has been recognizing, starting from a, a posture of saying, you know what, I'm finite. And because I have a finite existence, I need to anticipate my death and prepare for it. And so, mm -hmm. I don't know, more than a decade ago, I stumbled across this body of literature from the late Middle Ages called the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying. And these were handbooks that developed in the aftermath of the mid-14th century outbreak of bubonic plague, which devastated Western Europe. Some historians think that mm -hmm. maybe up to two-thirds of Europeans died. Maybe one-third is a better estimate. Again, who knows? One-third, you know, two-thirds of a population. It's a lot of people. Yeah, And so... Yeah. People who survived went to the leading social authority at the time, which happened to be the church, right, in Western Europe, and said, look, you know, we don't know what this means for us, but our, our people weren't buried properly. There were no last rites. There were no funeral masses, mm -hmm. whatever. You need to help us prepare for death because this plague could right. come back or there could be war or there could be famine, but we could face massive loss of life again and we need to be prepared. We've talked about kind of having the conversation with family and having an advanced directive and making your wishes known and um, obviously easier said than done. But um, apart from that, how does one prepare for death? I guess more like... What is the art of dying? Yeah. Yeah. So it's getting at questions such as what gives my life meaning? And then along with that, it's, it's these bigger existential questions. Why am I here? What is this for? You know, what does, what does life mean? What does it mean to be human? There is the advanced directives, but I really think, it, you know, as a primary care doctor, that these conversations, they're not just one-offs. You know, you don't just sign the document, but you, right. you talk about what this means. You know, I talk about it each year with my patients. Um, but finding meaning is... Uh you know, uh, famously difficult. Have you, <laughs> could you tell me a little bit more about what I should be doing to achieve that? 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So there are, you know, there are different surveys that are out there. The Pew Research Foundation has done some of them where they have, you know, they've done surveys of people asking them what they value, what gives their lives meaning. And then they've flipped that into sort of a, a quantitative survey where you kind of go through and check stuff off. And people, you know, they have all different kinds of answers. Of course, family and religion and work are probably some of the top three. Well, okay. So here's my here's my real question. I, I began with the question, you know, is it ethical to reopen given that it's going to cause a lot of death? And it sounds like, well, not reopening would cause a lot of harm and potentially deaths long term. I mean, it's not like a once in a lifetime massive economic disruption somehow doesn't cause a lot of death as well. But it seems like the calculation I'm trying to make right now is the same calculation that we're making as a society, which is, okay, there was this period where we were totally locked down. We just, nobody get it so we can get some more information because we don't know anything about this. Now we're six months into the pandemic. We know a little bit more, not a ton more. And I'm trying to decide how much of my, just all forms of, of health and life, does it make sense to sacrifice for the certainty that I won't get sick. And there's no certainty on that, right? There's not even right. certainty on right. that, unless you truly live in a bubble and have, uh, you know, right. completely Cloroxed food delivered to your front door. Right. Although I certainly tried <laughs> for a while. Um, but uh, obviously everybody's calculation is different depending on their circumstance, but it does seem like that's exactly what we're doing right now collectively is like, well, <laughs> we do have to accept some amount of death. Now, is this death being distributed fairly? Uh, I don't know what a fair distribution of death, but obviously death is falling on more vulnerable people more often. That is not something that I think most of us find ethically acceptable. That's right. But overall, de this death, this like wave of death is going to happen. That's right. But uh, but just on the, on the mention of more vulnerable populations, it's also, and this is, this is again where I come back to it, the, the impact of the lockdown on vulnerable populations must also be stated because right, right. Uh, that's huge and real. All life is important. And especially when we see a disproportionate impact on a particular population, how do we balance not doing harm with doing good? Or are our interventions proportional to the good we hope to receive? And, and mm -hmm. we do want, um, you know, we do want to make sure that our society is really measured by how well it cares for the vulnerable. Right. When we t started talking my, in my mind, I was like, well, reopening is horrific and just means that we're sort of blindly walking into huge amounts of death. But it sounds like lockdown is also ethically extremely compromised because it also affects the most vulnerable. So... If I could come back to my third way, though, I think, mm -hmm. you know, so much of the th the talk about how we need to reopen is because otherwise people wouldn't be able to, if they don't go to their job at McDonald's, people wouldn't be able to feed themselves and they wouldn't be able to pay rent. But actually they could, you know, we, we have the wealth in this country to have a universal basic income to make sure people are fed and sheltered and have a place to go when they get sick and th that we don't actually need people 
doing a lot of the jobs that we deem essential just so they can make minimum wage. I, I don't mean to rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm totally wrong. I, I just don't. I hate counting that possibility out, you know, uh, but maybe it just is. Is is that too too unrealistic to even put on the table? I think we, you know, we keep working toward making a, a more just and more equitable society. I think that's part of our mandate as human beings. And certainly as an ethicist, that's central to what I care about, treating others well, equitably, justly, figuring out the policies to realize those ethical principles is, is a very different sort of task. And, uh, it's it's a it's a no it's a complicated difficult task, but I think it's what we need to keep working toward. Certainly. Um, thank you. This has been really yeah. interesting. I got to read the art of dying and your book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Good luck with the book launch. Thank you. Bye bye. Any last thoughts? Well, I just want to make sure that we're clear on the sort of continuum of, I still think reopening is a bad premise. I still think normal is a bad premise. Yeah. You know? And the, the, the more that we focus on how densely packed our restaurants can be, the less we're focusing about on building new restaurants that can be safe places to be throughout the winter and next summer and the winter after that and schools. And we're just this idea that we're like sheltering until things go back to normal. It's just wrong. We just need to think of all these third options. And what she said about meaning and purpose is really important. Like finding ways that people can have meaningful work and meaningful activities in this new reality. Yeah. What gives your life meaning? That's a topic. Oh, for another... time for credits. Sorry, I guess yep, we're out. Time yeah. for credits. <laughs> Go for it. This show was produced today by Alvin Melleth. Write us at social distance at the Atlantic.com or call 202-642-6487. And if you like the show, tell a friend and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. Great. Okay. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.